This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Eric Ortz is the Guardsmark Professor at the Wharton School. He's a professor of legal studies and business ethics with a secondary appointment in my department, management. He's also faculty director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership, which you should definitely check out online. Eric's research includes a forthcoming article on Senate democracy in the American University Law Review and another article co-authored with Amy Sepinwall on collective rights and the court in the Washington University Law Review. He's completing a book for Oxford University Press on Rethinking the Firm, which is an interdisciplinary sequel to his Business Persons, A Legal Theory of the Firm. And he has ongoing research projects on financial regulation and economic inequality and theories of democracy in the business firm. He's also the author of The Moral Responsibility of Firms, one of the great thinkers in the realm of corporate social responsibility. In this episode, Eric and I discuss the real and present danger of climate change and the truth that we have currently technological solutions to address this issue but lack the political will to do so. We talk about the importance of corporations taking their responsibility in this arena seriously, not only to help save our planet, but also because it makes financial sense for them to do so, and the implications of this set of challenges for business education, how we empower the rising generation of leaders. Eric offers some hard-won wisdom on how to find hope to inspire positive action when it might feel like an overwhelming task to try to save the world for our children, their children, and the generations to come. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate it, review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now... Get set to listen to and learn from a preeminent expert on corporate social responsibility, my esteemed Wharton colleague, Eric Ortz. Welcome to Work and Life. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, why don't we start with uh, what is Wharton's global environment? Environmental Leadership, uh, um, the initiative, IGEL, what, what's it all about and what, what are you focusing on these days? Well, the history of the uh, initiative for global environmental leadership was uh, that about 12 or 13 years ago, the provost had a uh, proposal that was out and said what he, he would like to see is for the school to be – the university to become more international in an interdisciplinary way and so as for proposals and 
Uh, I agreed to go come forward with two other colleagues. One one is retired, uh, Bob Giegengack, who was in the uh, arts and sciences mm-hmm. uh, side. It was a is a geologist and uh, a very popular teacher, very uh, uh, well respected researcher. And the other was Jason Johnston, uh, Bob, uh, who was at the law school. Bob retired, and then Jason Johnson left and went to the University of Virginia Law School. So I have been uh, inherited uh, the the leadership role. I see. So I guess one lesson from that is that you can sometimes lead something just because other people either <laughs> retire or go somewhere else. And then the uh, I'm I'm still looking for some other people to come on board. And in fact, I think we have some ah, okay. Uh, colleagues so this is coming a recruiting up. conversation that we're having. <laughs> well, maybe now, so. Yeah, not me. But the, if you're listening out there and you're interested in leading the global environmental leadership initiative <laughs> yeah. at the Wharton School, give us a call. Well, I'm uh, not sure. I'm not sure that that's a oh, at the moment. It's not sure idea. it's a paid position, oh, right? Okay. So that's another well, question: is whether you get well, maybe the for backing. those of you who are if looking for now, something to if, do. If there's someone out there looking to. Uh, provide a naming opportunity on oh. something that might be called a climate, a business climate change center. I have a proposal out there for uh, for funding that. Okay. But anyway, um, well, the uh, but the history of IGEL was then that yeah. started about that time. It's been around for twelve years. Uh, the basic model is that we are freestanding, so we don't we get zero dollars in support from the school. And we uh, raise all of the money ourselves at this stage. So we got mm-hmm. a little bit of uh, a start uh, grant from the provost. Um, What's really the mission? Really very nominal. Uh, the mission is basically to uh, – is uh, there are three different areas. So the first area is to look at – and this was the answer to the provost's proposal. Look at the connection between – business and environmental problems in general. And it's naturally an interdisciplinary topic, mm-hmm. and it's also naturally uh, international. So if you see, mm-hmm. if you think of what are the bigger, biggest problems, climate change being at the top of the list, but biodiversity not far behind, uh, there are international kinds of problems. And uh, the main idea of our initiative, and I think this follows in other uh, in the in the in the trend of other schools, at least some other business schools have similar trends and are actually mm-hmm. moving ahead of us in this. I have to admit, uh, but basically the idea that business has to be a part of the solution to these problems. So the old school idea was that uh, environmental issues, including climate change or other topics, are what economists call externalities, and so it's not something that the businesses should care about. Right. So only if the government regulates and says, here's the pollution laws. That's when businesses should care. Otherwise, businesses, it's not your job. Your job is to focus on the main goal. How do you Profit uh, deliver? How do you make money, et cetera? You don't care about the environment. So there are a couple different uh, areas in which that's changed. One is that what you have consumers who care about this issue. So I think that that's starting to increase. It's also true that surveys of consumers uh, uh, will show that they care a lot more about the environment than actual studies of their behavior. So sometimes Mm. people want to be more green in their uh, consuming habits than they are. So that attitudes and behavior aren't necessarily the same. Right. They're not correlated necessarily. Mm -hmm. So – uh, uh, so there's a there's a behavioral question there. But then I think there's also a question of whether businesses want to get ahead of the curve. So let's say you think, and it's a little hard to imagine this right now, but I think that the truth is that sooner or later you're going to have uh, regulation in the climate area, for example, come back. Either that or we're going to deal with very serious consequences of that, which mm-hmm. we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And so businesses, if you're going to be forward thinking and you have any kind of time horizon, which is right now I would say about – 10 years out, and you're, in fact, already seeing climate effects that are fairly serious, 
So then you want to care about that. Uh, the other driving feature here, just from a business case point of view, is that employees care. So as you uh, look for hiring— People on this planet care about the planet yeah. being safe for humanity. Yeah. And people How want is to put that a revelatory idea? I mean, well, why I is think, it not obvious to all business leaders that this is I an think, issue that they need to be investing heavily in? I think that's a good question. I think the problem is path dependence to some extent. How As I mean? said, I think, I think there was an assumption that business should just care about business. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you, you want to care about the environment or you want to go do – okay, go ahead. Get the politicians to go do something about the environment. Uh, it's not our job. Not our it's not part of our responsibility. Mm. And that's part of the connection. And you, uh, thanks for mentioning all the research I've done in various areas. But part of the connection that I see between theories of the firm and theories of how we – of social responsibility in the firm, that connects to the environment. And that's actually how I first got into this area hmm. uh, was I was originally uh, pretty much a straight-up corporate law scholar. And then hmm. the Earth Summit was coming around in 1992. Uh, and you probably remember Ned Bowman in the management department. And so someone said, you know, you should really look at the environmental role. You're looking at all these other interests He's a visionary. in the firm. So someone – I said, well, that sounds good. Maybe I should go to this. And he said, yeah, you should go down to the Earth Summit. There's gonna, they're going to have a business group there and mm. all that. And I said, well, I'm interested in that. I'll look into it. And then I uh, – uh, this was a, the easiest grant I ever had was I called up Ned. I said, hey, someone saw my department chair, Tom Dunphy at the time, said I might be able to get a grant from you. He said, well, you have to apply for that first. And then I said – Okay, well, how do I apply? He said, well, uh, can you meet me in the hallway in five minutes? <laughs> so I meet him in the hallway. He said, okay, tell me why you want to go. Uh-huh. I said, uh, I gave him the reason. He said, okay, how much will it, talk, how much will it cost to fly down there, fly back, stay? And approved. So that was actually right. the beginning of – efficient um, process yeah, here well, in our Wharton, academic Wharton, environment. I mean, one thing I think that you'd agree about is that we are very much attuned to supporting – our assistant professors and actually all professors mm-hmm. in their research. For sure. And so uh, he saw, and I think others had seen, saw, saw uh, an area that was emerging. And it was actually really lucky for me because then I, sh- I switched and I had uh, one of my main articles uh, still probably today in terms of citations is mm-hmm. something called, is an article called Reflexive Environmental Law that came out of that experience. What's the, what's the really main the, idea? main idea there is that we need to uh, regulate smarter and businesses have to care about the regulation. So I think another path-dependent mode that still today, I'm kind of surprised, but still many businesses have, is that Explain we're just what against... path-dependent is. He, oh, path-dependent, yeah. So path-dependent means that you have a certain kind of historical trajectory of how, uh, of how the world's moving. And then the world changes in some way. So mm-hmm. climate change comes on the horizon. Right. But our basic way of organizing our economy, our government, our society doesn't really change to that. It continues mm-hmm. on that same path mm-hmm. unless you intervene and say, wait, we really have to change our behaviors in this respect because if we don't, we're going to have this big problem, a climate catastrophe, if we don't now start to change. So this and is unfortunately, inertia. It's, there, it's right. inertia. It's a kind of a social inertia, mm-hmm. right? And so the organizations, it's hard for organizations to change. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite references even for the Wharton School is that with respect to environmental issues and climate change in particular, we're sort of like an aircraft carrier. I mean, if you look at the capacity of the Wharton School to actually make a dent in the society, we're actually very powerful, right? But 
it's not easy for an aircraft carrier to move off of its course very much and to focus on new targets. Right. I want to get further and into so this. And so still, I think, we, you know, a lot of our colleagues, I think you would agree, are pretty much on the, on the shareholder wealth maximization uh, road, mm-hmm. and they don't want to depart from it. And they still hold the view that, you know, climate change is for someone else to worry about. Let wow. the school of design worry about it or the law school, but it's not really – the core mission of the business schools wow. to care about that. Yes. I think well, that makes, that's one of my main arguments is that we really have to care now, right? Because if businesses don't change and help to be a major solution, set of solutions to the problem, we are really going to go over the cliff. Fi- finish your description of what that reflexive uh, oh, yeah, regulation piece that. was about. And then I want to get back into the topic that you just raised, and, and that is what we can be doing within the context of business schools to be training future business leaders and influencing our various stakeholders here at the Wharton School and at other business schools to to help be a part of the solution. But yeah. what, what was the main, the main well, idea? Well, they're related a little bit. So one thing that I think we want to teach uh, students is how to think well about and smart about regulation. So the answer of not regulating was the traditional answer. Any regulation's evil, and you even have that, I think, today among some groups. And so the idea of reflexive regulation uh, is, uh, is a supplement to other ideas, including market-based regulation, where you look at how can you get the same environmental benefit but have a lower cost, have it impact business world, Uh, less than the traditional methods of regulation. And so the reflexive idea was to say, how can we get businesses to actually reflect about environmental impacts better? Mm. And one of the ways that I suggested in that, and I think since then you've seen a radical uptick in the number of voluntary uh, internal reporting about your environmental impact. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to be careful because sometimes – uh, companies will outsource that to the marketing department and say, write mm-hmm. us up a really good you know, piece of greenwashing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of companies, I think, are taking it seriously. That's a new yeah. term for me, but I think I get it. Oh, uh, well, the basic idea there is you say Look that green, you're green, but not be really. But you're not really green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like whitewashing, except mm-hmm. it's about environmental mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so that's the idea of a reflexive environmental law is that there are mm-hmm. uh, menu, and I've done some more recent research with, with Sarah Light in my department, that looks at the different menu of different kinds of self-regulation companies can have. So, for example, mm-hmm. Microsoft has set up its own internal market for trading climate permits, right? So you would think that's one option that you would have for international regulation or national regulation. But a lot of companies actually adopt this as well. And the idea of an, of an environmental report, I think, has become uh, relatively um, – uh, robust in the world now. It's mm-hmm. like you, you see increasing numbers of these. You see increasing numbers that are actually verified by a uh, third party. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, okay, we're doing this on climate. And you have somebody who's checking that, like an accountant checks the Can't be greenwashed audit. if somebody is auditing yeah. it. So they're mm-hmm. more trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And I think you see a movement toward that. So that was the idea of that paper. Eric, you started to touch on what we as a school can be doing, and I'd like to drill a little further down into that. Um, you know, I, I teach this elective course on leadership from the point of view of the whole person. And mm-hmm. this last semester, uh, for the first time, I added an article on, on climate change, the one by Wallace Wells that appeared oh, right. in New York Magazine and mm-hmm. then came out as a book uh, just a few months ago. Um, just to see what 
these 50 second year, mostly second year students who are in this elective class on leadership from the point of view of work and home and community and the, and the private self. So these are self-selected, you know, filtered in group of, of students to, to challenge them to think about uh, what do they think about their future with respect to this issue. And I thought that that would be a useful piece for us to be using as a kind of point of departure for that discussion and how, how they might be thinking about their careers and their lives. I was surprised to find that a substantial number of students uh, didn't really know much about the reality of climate change as it's mm-hmm. described so uh, so so vividly in that in that piece. Um, you know, separate and apart from how it might have you know be having an effect on them personally. So I wonder if these people are not aware. Uh, as much as you know, one needs to be in order to be you know, sort of motivated to take action. What can and should we be doing to be educating uh, not only our students but people everywhere, especially people in the business world, especially those coming into it, to to raise their consciousness about the 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 nature of the issue and what they can do about it? Yeah, well, I think it's a really great question. It's an essential question. Um, I have a uh, somewhat maybe more self-selected group of MBA students. My sense is that there is a lot of buy-in on this particular issue and at least more than maybe our generation. I I think Mm -hmm. the next generation has already had some more education. Now, it goes through phases, and the plain truth is that there is a lot of propaganda out there, including through the news, quote-unquote news uh, outlets, that are supporting a denialist point of view, which mm-hmm. is basically, um, in my view, I think it's pretty closely tied to particular business interests that do have an interest in not having people understand mm-hmm. the problem. So uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Upton Sinclair, and I, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it, but it, you probably know the one I'm going to say, which is that um, it's very difficult to get a person to understand something when their salary depends on not understanding it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that, unfortunately, there are a lot of very powerful business interests that ha- do, do not want to see us do anything on climate change uh, because it will change their business model. And you have to – if you look – if you're a bigger energy company and you mm-hmm. make all your money in coal or oil, then uh, – the truth is that if you really look at what we need to do, you cannot just continue to find more oil in the Arctic and uh, and burn it. And if we do, you're over the top, uh, and you're uh, we're already seeing. Uh, and and it's really great. Uh, the Wallace Wells article is a great one. I think I'm going to use it too. But now I might not use it because I know some of the students will have already read it in your These class. These were mostly second year, so. <laughs> but I, I was going to say, oh it. yeah, second year. So, but I was going to say that one of the things I'm going to do on that. Is uh, So one thing we can do is uh, – and you're doing it, I'm doing it – is that we can encourage our colleagues at a place like Wharton to increasingly incorporate not only environmental themes or climate issues. So it should if you be think it's a big class. issue, well, I think you could make an argument for it. I think there's generally a uh, – you get too much pushback when someone tells you you have to do something, especially mm-hmm. among us academics. We like – we have academic freedom. We, we prize our freedom. But yes. I think that it could be encouraged. So I'll just give you one anecdote mm-hmm. I just heard from MBA students today. And we had 
I had a group of maybe 30 students who were incoming who were looking at the – we have a new major called uh, the business environmental uh, – I'm sorry, the business energy and environmental studies major, which is a transformation of another major we uh-huh. have. So that's available. And we had about 30 students. But really what you need is about 100 of our Critical students, right? You really need, I mean, but we, but we, this has been going for a number of years, but one of them, actually, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll quote our dean because this was quoted to by the students, so maybe they got it wrong. But uh, our dean, Jeff Garrett, apparently welcomed them and said, well, in my opinion, there's two major problems. One is China, and one is technology, including AI and robotics. And again, this is secondhand, so I don't know. And then he said, but my, but my, but my kids are telling me I should put climate change on the list. <laughs> well, so I think that illustrates a couple things. For one thing, kids know better have, than grownups. I, I have said, <laughs> I have said, Jeff. I know Jeff. We started at Warren together. I have uh-huh. sent Jeff the exact same book that you just mentioned, Wallace Wells, uh-huh. The Uninhabitable Earth. Yes. And I think if you actually start to read it and take it seriously, it, the science is really undeniable. becoming clear. Right. It's undeniable, and it's extremely. Uh, Terrifying. Terrifying, and we got to do it, right? So, and the, the, you don't have a lot of time anymore. Like, I've been on this issue for a long time, but the scientists are now telling us that we have a 12 year window, which I think is now closer to 11 Mm -hmm. when they last said it. Mm -hmm. And we're not really making a turn yet. And if we don't make the turn, we have, it's, it's getting desperate. Now, having said that, I think we still have to stay optimistic. And I wanted to mention one other thing that we're doing. Yes. At, uh, so one thing, we could also educate our leaders at IGEL, <laughs> but, uh, to get behind it. But mm-hmm. at uh, IGEL, and, and this is also something, uh, I'm going to try to get the rest of the faculty to approve. I'm pretty sure they will, but we have the, you know, we have the core requirements and we're going to do one of the core requirements or propose it to be on, um, uh, responsibility in business, but mm-hmm. have a sustainability feature to that. To, for so that, that to would be, the be focus. something. Yeah, yeah, that would be something to include. But you're right that um, I don't know what the best way to do that is. Uh, how to uh, encourage everyone to take into account questions of ethics and environment and those kinds of issues mm. in all of their courses. I have a sense that there is a lot of that done, and and but I I also am very careful not to judge. Uh, colleagues who mm-hmm. also feel like you know if you take something like statistics or these or some other topics they have an idea of how you you have to teach the meta- methodology mm-hmm. and a lot of it a lot of it is not really amenable to shifting it, it, mm-hmm. but even in those kinds of courses I think that you can think about how to how to apply how to how to how to at least tweak some interest or some some give some education about these kinds of some of the basic Seems issues to me that uh, and maybe we're getting a little off topic and speaking mm-hmm. out of school here while we're here at school yeah but um, the business school that that takes the lead on this issue and and establishes a sort of brand as being you know in the vanguard of the movement to solve this worldwide problem would would uh, would do well for all its constituents who's doing well, who's doing a better right. job than us well i think we're in there uh so we were a founder of something of a group called the alliance for research and corporate sustainability and that also was around the same time as the founding of the of the R uh, of IGEL mm-hmm. uh, about 10, about 11, 12 years ago. That mm-hmm. is g- booming. Uh, we are adding schools, and the idea is to have high quality research support new mm-hmm. faculty coming in, support PhD students. I mean, so one of the things we're both in the management department, um, management departments can look for uh, people to teach this. I think, for example, our school, uh, our, our department could 
could afford to add someone more uh, directly in this area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, though, that we are now falling behind a little bit. Part of it is just, you know, one of the leadership lessons is if you're going to try to do something and you have a project, you can be as passionate as you want <laughs> about that project. But mm-hmm. if you don't get the necessary resources, you, need support. you are not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And right now, we don't really have the the same resources at Wharton as uh, I would say the leaders right now is, are Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so they have a uh, group called the Herb Center, which mm-hmm. I think uh, uh, a fan, they found a family donor about twenty twenty five million dollars at this stage, mm-hmm. and that helps, that helps to you know that's what you need to pay the people to do the research to have the events, et cetera. So I would say Michigan is a leader right now. I would say Yale uh, is a leader in part. Uh, Michigan and Yale have schools of the environment that mm-hmm. are that are located there. Right. Um, North Carolina was a first mover. The The ARCS conference, the Alliance for Research and Corporate Sustainability annual concert conference was just in uh, North Carolina. And they were a first mover with a, with a, with one of uh, Stuart Hart who became mm-hmm. – who then went to Cornell. And then they didn't really do anything. But that that legacy then turned into an $8 million, $10 million gift, with, mm-hmm. which they just got. So that's going to help. Them. And they have some excellent young faculty. But I would say – I don't, I would say that Wharton is still within range if we have the resources. So mm-hmm. we have um, we have some great young faculty who are leaders, and I can go over the list of a, probably about you know seven or eight younger faculty or, or our age faculty who are really great. So you know you read the uninhabitable Earth, and you you think, oh my God. There's so much that's going to go yeah. wrong really mm-hmm. fast. What can I do? Why why isn't everyone, you know, devoting all, every ounce of their energy to uh to trying to solve this problem? Uh so I wonder if you could speak Eric just briefly about like what what causes people to 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 be inhibited from taking action and then let's get into what you think people can and should be doing both at work and in other parts of their lives? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. So, yeah, if you come from the perspective, I've been involved in this uh, maybe, what, 20 years now or so, and if you are come from a perspective of understanding the science, understand the importance of what is being predicted and seeing what's actually happening and following the news, then I think the only rational reaction is the one you just indicated. It should be one of our highest priorities in social policy and business and education and how we are talking about issues with our kids and how we live our lives. Um, now, there, so one thing to think about is, well, why isn't that happening? Mm-hmm. And uh, as we were talking a little bit at the break, I think one reason is that it's very difficult to compl- con- contemplate mm-hmm. the consequences because the consequences, which c- we could lock in within 12 years if we don't do anything, are very severe. We're going to – if you think about the migrant problem at the border right now and the, how, much co- how much problem that's causing, multiply that by about 100 mm-hmm. because you're going to be talking about people living in the middle parts of the planet – are going to be – that's why it's the title of the book is The Uninhabitable Earth. There are going to then be places people cannot live. Mm-hmm. It will be so hot, and we see uh, some examples of this already starting yeah. to appear, that it will be so hot on Can't some live. parts on the earth, you'll die be, if so you go outside. So, right? so you won't be able to, to respirate. So you're right that this is really terrible. 
And so the problem is that I think people don't like to think about that because it's so terrible. So mm-hmm. one analogy is that people, a lot of people don't like to think about death. Mm-hmm. I don't like to think about my own death either. Mm-hmm. I know that it's about, it's coming, and mm-hmm. unfortunately it's coming faster now than when I was a younger man, right? But it's going to come. But <laughs> yes. you, 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 so the rational way to do that, to handle that, is you should live your life in consciousness of that. Yes. You live fully, et cetera. Think of it's almost a religious thing, right? Like for me, it is a religious just mm-hmm. thing, and, and uh, I think religion uh, for everyone, uh, it can be religion or something else that is very uh, fundamentally grounding, mm-hmm. that you have to have that to deal with this kind of issue. So for me, the way I survive in part is that I'm an active member of my Unitarian Church downtown, and mm-hmm. I get a lot of support from the reflections that I have there. I'm probably going to lead a adult learning project there on this topic, and you get you dealing with other people who care about this issue, and that's mm-hmm. one answer to your question. I think be with other Find people with other who are people. engaged. So who your care. family, uh, mm-hmm. can, if you can convince them, or you know, a lot of the converts to this question, yeah. and the dean was just an example. Who is pushing on Listening him? Who has kids. influence? Their kids, right? And uh, we almost had a funder who was at the $20 million level, uh-huh. and we missed the chance. But uh, it was a hedge fund person, and who was pushing him? It was not like anyone else. It was his children saying, Dad, this is like, my future. what about me? Yeah. What are you doing? What are you going to do? And I think that's one another answer is uh, my son is actually on me about it. It's like, thanks a lot, Dad. Like, you haven't done anything. And he's right, right? I've, I've been working on this issue. But if you really look not at enough. it, there's no needle that moved. The, if mm-hmm. anything, it's kind of accelerating. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's right. And, uh, and, the, wow. and, the, and the youth of the world who are raising this issue are correct to raise it. So I think that's one way to engage it is to say, do you care about your children and your grandchildren? And people have CEOs, there are stories where they switched. Uh, so that's one thing is that you, if you're open to this issue, there are people can convert on understanding it, can overcome this red, this reticence to face the terrible consequences, and then can commit themselves mm-hmm. in a loving and grounding way mm-hmm. to trying to be optimistic about it and move it forward. And I think that's the only way uh, that you can do it. Now, the to other find uh, some yeah. way to take action that is uh, towards uh, healing in some way, yeah. whatever you can do. No one of us is going to solve this problem on our own, clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but every one of us can do something, right? I think that that's right. So I think it's hard, and I think the one thing that you don't want to do is mm-hmm. to go into a depression about it or to get suicidal or something mm-hmm. like that. And that is really a serious issue. There's an increase in anxiety and depression, et cetera. And I think part of it can be explained to people just saying, wow, this is just a very dark future. I mean, yes. some of my colleagues had a conversation. Who's, uh, I have some people who will say, well, I'm not going to have any children. And what the reason yeah. is, uh, I don't want them to live in the world that we're preparing for them because <laughs> of climate. So I try to make the argument: Well, look, you know, they're the, you know, it's still a good idea. It's like you know, give my well, own experience. I've know, had one. You can only just have one child. How about that? Right? You don't have to have seven. But still, um, you know, I was, that's a you know, that's kind of the thing. Is I think an important feature of how you orient yourself to the world is. What are you doing this for? It's not just about yourself. It cannot be. It's not just about what you can make. You know, it's not how much money you make at the end, right? That's not well, the end. Of course end. not. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of research that shows, an increasingly large body of research that shows that success in life is not a function of material gain, but the people at the end of their lives. And the best studies of this uh, are those who, who, who feel the most 
uh, fulfilled about their lives looking back are those who have invested in humanity in relationships. Um, You know, the class session that I did on the uninhabitable earth followed a class session that I did on research uh, that I've done on how uh, changing attitudes about having children. Mm-hmm. Uh, comparing, you know, generations, uh, you know, the Gen Xers to the Millennials, uh, the main finding of which is that uh, Millennials are half as likely to plan to be planning to have children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had this discussion about men's and women's roles, how they're changing, and how people are thinking about uh, children and how they're going to, f- you know, figure out how to find support for child rearing in America, where there's not a lot of public support for all the things that we need. And then I, I hit them with this article on the climate. And a number of them said, you know, now I really don't want to have kids. <laughs> yeah, the, However. I want to rethink the order of that. <laughs> well, well the, the, but the, the sort of uh, the coda to this is um, a second piece that um, Benjamin Wallace Wells, the author mm-hmm. of The Uninhabitable Earth, wrote. Uh, it was about his having a child during the course of his you know, couple of years of doing this research for this article and book. Mm-hmm. You know, because people are asking him, like, okay, how how did you solve that problem in your head? And he said, you know, as I talk to the leading scientists, it's remarkable how many of them have a sense of optimism about what might be possible. And that my child, because she will be facing the greatest challenge humanity has ever known, can be a part of the generation that solves the biggest problem yeah. we have collectively faced. And wouldn't that be a cool thing? Uh, whoa, Okay. That's optimistic, and I suppose that's an, that's kind of the attitude one has to have, no? Well, I think that's right, and I think that Wallace Wells says this at the end of his book, and others say this as well, and I believe it. We have the tools. It's not as if we have to invent something new to solve the problem. If you look at uh, solar technology and mm-hmm. wind technology and battery technology, all the trends are that we have uh, we're hitting technological breakthrough after breakthrough. It's becoming cheaper, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So on the energy side, it is possible to make this switch. It's a big switch. You're going to have to have policy involved and other things. Mm-hmm. But um, there is uh, there are technological solutions both in the uh, – uh, on the engineering side, but also the legal side. So we can change the way businesses think about this issue, too, and businesses can get more involved. Uh, right now, a lot of businesses have ceded the field to the fossil fuel industry, who has had no problem because I think they're in the denial phase and they're, you know, they're, still. They're, they're, Oh, yeah. I, I think you still see, even though you'll see some gestures toward, mm-hmm. uh, well, we're going to spend some money on algae uh, uh, biofuels, ExxonMobil being the example. Mm-hmm. You look at what they're really doing and it's all – they're drilling. all in on, uh, on on drilling more and in, in burning it all up. So I don't think there's any doubt about that. And there's uh, there are scandals regarding ExxonMobil in particular where – uh, they basically knew the problem of climate change uh, and then years covered ago. it up mm-hmm. and uh, sponsored science to deny it, mm-hmm. quote unquote science, mm-hmm. and that's pretty uh, pretty um, unethical stuff that was occurring. So I think you still have that, and you that's what's driving the denialism mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. the Koch brothers are clearly uh, a force that have a business interest. They don't want to give it up, and for whatever reason, they're not going to change their opinion about the problem. And they are going to use their influence in the political process. Now, that's another, you know, that gets to the question, where are the other businesses who can, who are either neutral on the issue or can actually prevail. can, can, can uh, 
can gain from being more involved in the political process. Mm -hmm. I think the argument there is that they need to get more involved in the political process. You can't just say, uh, well, somebody else will do it or let the Sierra Club do it. I mean, they're just not going to have the resources mm -hmm. that a, uh, a, co a coherent group of other business interests, if they can start to become a little bit more proactive, I think then the aircraft carrier of our society can start to change. But we don't have time. We've got to move more quickly. Well, it so has to be quick. I think when you have a look, – look at one, one favorite example is the Sputnik uh, example, right? Some uh, people the Russians, remember Sputnik who are listening. Most do not. Right. So, Eric, a brief history. Well, the Cold War uh, was uh, sparked in part uh, by the Sputnik where, where Russia went into space first. And so they put up a they, they beat up us a, in the space they race. They beat up a space to the first guy. So what are we yeah. going to do? We said we're going to put the first person on the or first man on the moon. Mm -hmm. in that words of that era. And so we did. And there was a huge expenditure of funds to put NASA, Apollo uh, eleven on the moon, mm -hmm. and it was successful. And it spun off a huge uh, number of uh, economic benefits uh, to boot. There's no reason that we cannot do that today. And I think we were talking uh, maybe to get to the issue of the Green New Deal. Yeah. Uh, the Green New Deal is not practical in terms of what the, the, brief, uh, the brief statement is that's been given. But there's no reason that we can't adopt that and then put a practical policy level on it. Yeah. If you want to look it's at – you know, I mean, again – We need uh, a moonshot for the environment. Yeah, and, and that, uh, one of the presidential candidates, uh, mm -hmm. Governor Inslee yeah. from Washington – has a plan like that. And he actually wrote a book, uh, Apollo's Fire, when he was a congressman way mm -hmm. back when. Uh, but he has, uh, he has been endorsed. He has a plan. So whether you endorse him or, or whatever your politics are, the reality is that there are politicians out there and there are states out there who have enacted real programs that all you have to do is take them and bring it up to the federal level and if the United States moves back into a leadership position on climate change, mm -hmm. I really think you can uh, still change things fast enough. But it's going to – you're right. You have to do it. You, now. We don't have more. Now. We have less than a decade. Who are the who are the leading lights here at Wharton who are doing great research on this area? Let's just have their names so listeners can, can check out their research further. And then I want to get – uh, in our last segment into, um, w you know, what a person can do. All right. I, I think leaders, and I, I apologize to those I might leave out right away, but I think uh, Veet Hennish in the management department, uh, Mara Guilin also in management, and then if you, uh, Sarah Light in my department uh, just received tenure. She focuses mostly environmental law. Uh, Arthur Van Bentham, uh, one of the leading environmental economists, I think, who is uh, uh, relatively, uh, you know, new professor Brian Berkey in my department, I think, is one of the best philosophers I've seen writing in this area on the ethics of environmental, uh, the ethics and uh, environmental ethics in business. And then Eric Gilja is in the finance department, is, uh, one of the leaders in thinking about how do you do project finance for various kinds of energy product projects. Um, so uh, that's just a sampling, I think, of a, a number mm -hmm. of, of a cohort of people. Uh, who are now at Wharton, who are re engaged. Right. So, and, and then we should also mention uh, that at Penn, mm -hmm. uh, there, uh, one school in particular is taking a major leadership position here at Penn, and that's the design school. Mm -hmm. uh, the new dean actually writes in the sustainability area, mm -hmm. and they just had a, 
uh, very impressive uh, review of Ian McArg's work, who was an early landscape architect who took the environment seriously and mm-hmm. has had a huge influence in how you design the environment. Uh, for sustainability. So uh, the law school, there's a number of medical school, veterinary schools. So there are a number of other schools here mm-hmm. at Penn who have, uh, who have capability here. So the, there are listeners all across our country and in Canada who are wondering, I, I expect, what does this mean for what I can do in the limited space I might be able to, to carve out in my incredibly busy and highly stressed life? to be able to uh, to make a difference. What thoughts well, do you have about that, Eric? One thing I would say is uh, is to connect with nature in a more immediate way. We were hmm. talking a little bit about, I just came back from a, a, a wilderness trip I will never forget with my son. It was just a father-son trip into nice. the wilderness of the Quetico Provincial Park. Where's and there that? is just some, that's the, in Ontario. You just mentioned uh-huh. Canada, so mm-hmm. uh, your listeners in Canada. Uh, and it's... Uh, 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 just above the U.S. border, but it's about the size of a small U.S. state of total wilderness. And you canoe in there and you portage your canoe over some uh, connections from one lake to another, et cetera. Wow. But for two days during that trip, we did we literally saw nobody else. And it's an experience I would recommend for people to try. Uh, maybe not if you're frail or need to go to a hospital really quickly because uh-huh. you know, it is scary when you're out there right. pretty far from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that experience, another experience I had like that was a, a, a lucky chance to go with the Wharton leadership team to Antarctica where I was saying, well, you guys are going to Antarctica. You should be talking about climate change. They said, OK, we need a faculty fellow to uh-huh. go with us. So I would say for, for people, though, to just you don't need to go anywhere fancy to do that just to connect with nature because I think we're, we get involved in so, so much technology, et cetera. There is a healing aspect to and a, and a spiritually grounding aspect to just appreciating a nice park or having some time taking away and that that can be uh, soothing for the anxiety that you're uh, <laughs> facing for dealing with these kinds of problems. So that's one – I think that's one piece of advice I give to people. And then we – Go back to the issue of being involved with others. So whether it's a religious mm-hmm. community, could be a, a um, could be a political organization. You mm-hmm. get involved with your local nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a sustenance that people need. You have to be if you're doing this with community, that's a lot easier. If you're just going to read about it on Facebook, I mean, I'm I'm on Facebook and Twitter a lot myself, but mm-hmm. I realize that it can be very dangerous. And if it, if it becomes only you're only in your you're only in your machine. That's one thing I noticed when coming back from the wilderness. All these people walking around, they're just with their head in their machine. Yes, yes, they're not yes. even seeing the we environment. A lot they're about not that even seeing show. other people, right? Pick your head up and look around. Yeah, so that's one thing, too. Well, uh, what about at work, being able to advocate, especially if you see opportunities for your business to get involved in a positive way? Well, I think one thing we do teach is that, you know, the, the reality is that even we can have an expansive, I think you and I agree, we can have an expansive sense of purpose of the social responsibility of the firm. At the end of the day, though, firms still exist to be making a profit. And if they don't make an exist, if they don't do that, they're out of business. Mm-hmm. So that still has to be a primary objective. So one piece of advice that you have for or that we try to teach in our classes is uh, to be able to make the business case for the environmental issue. So if there's an environmental issue, you may be primarily motivated to solve the problem of climate change. But if you can make the case, and we do this, we've done this internally at Wharton, if you can make the case to the uh, financial uh, person in your organization, Mm -hmm. this is actually not only going to save the climate so we can feel good about ourselves – 
this, we're going to have an improvement there, but we're saving money. It makes it very difficult to object to. Can you give an example of that? Well, let's say, I don't know, I'll give you an example right now, which is uh, the uh, 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 I was in the elevator today, and uh, there was a maintenance guy here who had a big sweatshirt on. And he was going upstairs. I said, what's going on? So he said, like, he said, wow, it's really, you know, and I said, how are you doing, et cetera. It turned out he worked the graveyard shift here at Wharton and the service guy. He said it was freezing all night. So, you know, anyone around Philadelphia right now, we're going through this huge heat it's wave. It's very right? hot here, folks. So something is missed. Something's not quite right there. Why so is the air conditioning? We generally pun- get it right here. I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to throw everyone under the bus here because right. I think we have a great internal so sustainability. Small change but that's a small that, thing that just gets out of kilter a little bit. Right. And somebody might be concerned about that, about climate change. But I'm sure if that's then, I'll try to remember to do this. You know, then communicate that to the maintenance, the people yeah. are in charge. Yeah. They'll say, well, okay, let's look into that because obviously you're spending a lot of money to fr- to to refrigerate a, <laughs> to refrigerate a building of this size overnight when right. not very many people are here is probably not a good use of your money as well as not a good idea for the planet. I wonder if you can give a brief um piece of uh advice based on your experience about how to deal at work with uh with others who might disagree with you about say the issue of climate change or uh, other issues where political considerations, yeah. where to invest resources, who should be in charge, come into play. What advice do you have for listeners who are interested in speaking about these questions where they might be politically charged at work? Well, I think you have to be careful. And I think a, a, a general rule of engaging other people is you have to sen- get a sense of whether they're really open to it. So I follow a rule, and this is even at conferences, and this will be sometimes with very heavily politically operative people. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm uh, open-minded. I'm happy to talk to libertarians, Republicans, Democrats, etc. <laughs> now, it happens that in one party in particular right now, there's a lot of denialism in that particular party mm-hmm. about climate. And when I'm engaging with someone, I'll basically say, well, do you basically believe in the science here? Mm-hmm. Because if the answer is no – then you're not going to really – unless you, you can have a little bit of a discussion about that. But mm-hmm. if you have someone who's just in denial about the basic existence of the problem, yeah. it's sort of what Senator Moynihan said. You know, Everybody can have opinions about something, but we have to agree on some basic facts. Right. And there's a basic fact here that climate change is happening and mm-hmm. it's a major threat. So, so if you, you point if you're talking, to the point then is – the point then is at some point you just have to not – you just have to ignore some people. They're not, that's not going to be part of the solution mm-hmm. unless you get to know them in some other way mm-hmm. or you, you, they're open to maybe reading an article as, that we were mentioning. But if they're really closed down and, they're, and then their news sources are only the news sources that are telling them there's no such the thing as climate story. or they're just locked into the president's tweets mm-hmm. saying there's no such thing as climate, it's a mm-hmm. Chinese hoax or something mm-hmm. ridiculous like that, mm-hmm. then there's really – you're not going to really reach that person. So I think the advice I would have is you reach out for those who are potential allies on the issue mm-hmm. and, you, and you decide what can you do or what can't you do. And some firms – it might be that you really can't do much if it's really controlled by people who don't care about mm-hmm. this issue at all. Mm-hmm. But in lots of firms, I think it's probably the exception rather than the rule, uh, there's lots of firms where there are going to be sustainability people in the firm somewhere. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people who are going to be happy to save costs if you're mm-hmm. coming up with a good idea that's mm-hmm. also green. And in many firms, I think today, they're going to be even more supportive than that, right? They're going to be open to, uh, to other kinds of engagement. 
So those are some things that people can do, and and being aware of uh, the changing reality that yeah. we are facing is is one. Is you know, stay thing that uh, stay informed, do. stay informed, get active, make sure you're taking care of yourself and not letting it get mm-hmm. da- get you down. If mm-hmm. you're then you're follow- probably following it too much if it's getting you down. Uh, and I think uh, and look for the opportunities and try to stay try to stay as optimistic as possible. This is a question I've been asking everyone this year, the year that I think of as the year of accountability. What do you do personally to keep yourself accountable for the values that you hold most dear? Well, I guess I'll uh, I'll refer again to my uh, my my religious life. I think that I mm-hmm. uh, I try to go, I try to make it to most of the Sunday services. Uh, these days, and it's not that I always feel like it's a great service, but just partly being in a community where mm-hmm. you have other people who are also uh, who are also accountable, and to be an enge- uh, to find yourself to try to find places where you can engage friends. Mm-hmm. Sometimes maybe over a drink, where you might be a little more mm-hmm. honest about what mm-hmm. you're about. Have friends that uh, maybe seek out some friends who are not going to be bad influences on you, but are going to be. You know the kind of people are going to hold you accountable, mm-hmm. or the kind of people that you want to have a good opinion of you, so that you'll uh, you'll try to be a better person. Wise advice, Eric. Thank you so much for being a, uh, a guest on the show and for being in the studio tonight. How can people find out more about your work? Well, they can uh, they could email me, or you can just look at Eric. Or it's on the Wharton School website, the faculty website. It's ORTS. Reason. It's uh, Eric. Yeah, O R T S E at wharton.upenn.edu. But if you Google ORTS and Wharton, you'll find me. Uh, and there's a research tab there. And then if you're interested in iGel, I encourage people to go to uh, Wharton iGel. And we have a website. We have lots of special reports there. Yeah, and I won't, uh, I won't waste the opportunity to mention there's an opportunity to donate there if, if people want to help, uh, help us with our work. So. A worthy cause. Thank you again, Thanks so Eric. much for inviting me in. I hope you found my conversation with legal and ethics scholar and advocate for positive social change, my Wharton colleague, Eric Ortz, to be informative, inspiring, and a realistic call to action. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. What one thing can you or your organization do that you're not doing now to make some change that both benefits our sanctuary, this planet, and your bottom line. I am certain that you're spending some time reflecting seriously on this question will be worth your while, and you might even feel a greater sense of control in the face of what might otherwise seem to be an overwhelming task. Let me know what you come up with and what happens if you act on any such ideas. I would love to hear from you. So get in touch with me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. 
Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.